Let's go before our Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for having established our steps to this point and place in time. We're gathered here in this morning hour. We have the great privilege of opening up your holy scriptures and gleaning from them riches of grace and glory in Christ Jesus to nourish our souls, to build us up in the faith, to sanctify us even more into the very image of Jesus Christ. We plead with you on the merits of Christ, Father, that as your word does go forth, that it will do so superintended by the very power and unction of the Holy Spirit. So that we will have the ears to hear, the eyes to see, and that our very hearts will be opened, even as Lydia's heart was opened by the Spirit of God, to take heed to the things spoken to her by Paul. We pray, Lord, for that same ministry of the Spirit to be much with all of us in this hour. And we pray that as the ground that we will cover from your Word, Father, is presumably very familiar teaching and truth, To the majority of us here this morning, we ask the Holy Spirit to make it fresh, even as if we were hearing it for the first time. May we be captivated by the glory of what your word reveals regarding the appointment of our redemption in Jesus Christ. We ask all these things for the sake of Christ our Lord. We ask them on the basis of his saving merits, in the authority of his name, we pray. Amen. Well, I invite you this morning to take the word of God and let's do turn to Ephesians chapter 1. And as you're turning there, I do want to thank Ephesus Church for their hospitality in opening up their campus, their homes, their ministry, to our general assembly, to our association this week. And certainly I want to also thank the administrative council of our Georgia association for asking me this year to come and to bring to you the word of God and on the subject of the doctrine of election. Ephesians chapter 1. Let's begin reading at verse 3. Through verse 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him 
who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. And this is the Word of God. If you were to take a survey among mainstream evangelical churches in our day concerning the most common, accepted, and popular view of salvation, At the end of your research, your conclusions could perhaps be summarized in the following words. While salvation is what God provides, yet its provision to save is entirely dependent on man's decision. To express this widely held sentiment another way, salvation is completely determined by what man does. This means that if God's provision to save is going to be fulfilled in any degree, it will be up to what man chooses to do with God's provision. By this understanding, therefore, the basis or cause for why anyone is saved is man's decision, not God's. And it is this concept of salvation which serves as the only category most modern evangelicals embrace or will even entertain as a truly plausible view. Now, from the perspective of church history, this particular and popular view of salvation has been labeled by one of two names. In some circles, we know it as semi-Pelagianism. And in other circles, more commonly, we know it as Arminianism. What each of these theological positions hold regarding the doctrine of salvation is essentially the same thing. They both teach that though man is a sinner, yet he has the natural ability within himself to take the first step toward God for salvation. Moreover, it is only as he takes that first step that he can be assured of God's help in bringing him to actual salvation. At the core of this teaching is the belief that while man's human will may have been weakened by the fall, it was not, however, enslaved to man's sinful nature. The sinner, in the semi-Pelagian and Arminian understanding, retains his power to choose with no tainted corruption by his own sinfulness. In short, his human will is no different than Adam before the fall. He has the ability to choose that which is either spiritually good or spiritually evil. So when it comes to salvation, the sinner is ultimately saved by his natural ability to choose in cooperation with God's offer of grace and then the assistance God gives to that sinner who makes the right choice. This is, in summary, the semi-Pelagian and Arminian under standing in view of salvation. But what's most important for us to understand, beloved, is that this historic concept of salvation is alive and well in the vast populace of evangelical pulpits and pews. Now, certainly the crucial question for us in response to this popular concept of salvation is whether or not it accurately and faithfully holds forth the teaching of God's Word. Does God's Word teach that salvation is determined by man's choice? Does the Word of God teach that salvation is merely what God provides for the sinner while it is the sinner himself who determines if God's provision will truly be effective? To raise these kind of questions, of course, is not meant to be offensive to fellow believers who may hold such a view, but rather... It is to keep us all in check that when it comes to our doctrinal beliefs, our first priority is to be certain that what we believe is in fact the teaching of God's Word and not what we may be imposing on God's Word. 
So in the light of this priority, I want to raise a much larger question this morning for our study. Why are we saved? Why are we saved? Now, to answer this question, I want to turn our attention to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. This passage is actually a small portion of a greater section of Scripture which comprises 12 verses altogether, starting in verse 3 and then closing at verse 14. One of the most significant grammatical features about this passage is that these 12 verses are, in fact, one long long sentence in the original Greek stretching to over 200 words. But concerning the content of Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, what we have in essence is a doxology and thus a poem of praise to God for all the blessings of the gospel. In addition, however, to these general features, we must also take into account that when compared to the rest of God's word, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14 represents one of the single most comprehensive teachings on the biblical doctrine of salvation. We therefore see in this one passage of Scripture that salvation is above all a Trinitarian work. This means that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit were each uniquely involved in the salvation of sinners. Salvation then cannot be claimed for just one person in the eternal Godhead, but it is all three persons in covenant together, bringing forth the work of redemption. Furthermore, Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 shows us that the very existence and substance of the church in time and history was in truth planned from eternity in the will and good pleasure of God. This fact reminds us all that the church was not man's idea but God's purpose and plan. Moreover, the work of salvation forming the church in time and history is all in accord to the sovereign and holy satisfaction of the eternal God. So when approaching Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 as a whole, any thinking, sensible Christian should be struck immediately by the overwhelming God-centeredness of salvation. Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 forces us to look up and fix all of our attention on the sheer majesty of God's sovereign grace as the beginning and end of our salvation and thus the only reason the church of Jesus Christ is a living reality in the world. But for this morning, as I've already specified, our attention will be given to verses 3 through 6 of Ephesians chapter 1, where we will answer the aforementioned question as to why anyone is saved by keeping our answer within the theological category of when our redemption was actually appointed and what that redemptive appointment contained. So, unpacking this truth from this great passage, I want to underscore four major propositions which surface from this text. First, God alone is praised for our salvation. Second, God chose to save us. And third, God predestined us to adoption as sons. And finally, God has elected and predestined us for salvation because of his own good pleasure and for his own glorious praise. To begin with, then, let us consider that God alone is praised For our salvation. Look with me at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. As Paul opens up this letter to the Ephesian church, he does so by his customary greetings and salutations. He identifies himself as a divinely commissioned apostle of Jesus Christ. And then he identifies the recipients of this letter. They are saints and faithful in Christ Jesus. Hence, this letter is targeting a very unique group of people. They are a people who have been set apart by God and for God. And they are a people whose lives are marked by trust and obedience to Jesus Christ. 
Therefore, it is only to these people that the affirmation and prayer can can rightfully be given grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. But on the heels of these Christian greetings, Paul now launches forth into an extended praise for the spiritual blessings of his, of God's saving grace. Again, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. There are three principles I want us to draw from these words of praise to God for our salvation which Paul indicates as every spiritual blessing. First, notice, realizing and understanding the truth of our salvation always leads to praise for God. This is precisely the motivation behind these words of Ephesians 1 and verse 3. Paul is exalting and worshiping God for how he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing connecting to our salvation. This means that the very thought of salvation in the heart of a Christian should evoke praise to God. As we realize and understand the truth of our salvation by God's grace, then the worship of God should always be the first and great response. Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This verb translated blessed comes from a Greek term where our English word eulogy is derived. The meaning behind this word has to do with a message of praise and commendation in someone's behalf. It is essentially expressing the idea that this person being eulogized is worthy of blessing. So then as Paul begins his letter to the Ephesian church, he is is moved to break forth in a brag fest, if you will, on the goodness and greatness of God, but specifically in the salvation of sinners. But what we need to see in the fuller context of these opening words in Ephesians 1 and verse 3 is that this praise of God and to God comes only as we realize and understand the truth of our salvation. Principally, we can put it like this. The greater our understanding of what God has done in saving us, the greater our praise to God will be. Secondly, since every aspect of salvation is by God's design and doing, then only God is to be praised for salvation. Looking again at verse 3, we notice that it is God alone who is praised for supplying and enriching the church with every spiritual blessing. And every spiritual blessing is qualified not only in the immediate verses which follow Ephesians 1 and verse 3, but throughout the Ephesian letter as a whole, blessings which all pertain to our redemption as the church. Moreover, the fact that these blessings are identified as spiritual points to the source from which they come who is God. And to be more specific, based on how this word translated spiritual is employed in the New Testament, it always refers to the work of God, the Holy Spirit. The bottom line is simply this. There is no blessing given in the work of salvation where man shares part of the praise with God or owns all the praise. It is God alone. Beloved, it is God alone who is to be praised for the work of salvation. Thus we read in our text that God is to be blessed. God is to be eulogized for blessing us with every spiritual blessing. Thirdly, every blessing we enjoy as Christians comes to us exclusively through the mediation of Jesus Christ. According to our text, while it is God the Father who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing, which is applied to us by God the Holy Spirit, yet every spiritual blessing enjoyed and experienced by the church was obtained by God the Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we read that God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. 
In fact, what we must recognize as we look at Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 collectively is that our salvation is described ten different times as being in or through Jesus Christ. Elaborating once on this fact, Sinclair Ferguson wrote, It is in Christ that God blesses us, not apart from Him. This expression and its equivalents occur over and over again in these verses. When we become Christians, we do not merely receive a benefits package from Christ, containing forgiveness, new life, new hope, and so on. Much more than that is involved. We receive Christ Himself. We are united to Him by His Spirit so that all that He achieved for us becomes ours. So then based on Ephesians 1 and verse 3, and what shall follow, the cause, the source, and all the blessings we receive for for our salvation can be credited only in one direction. It is to God and to God alone. We cannot in any way take the credit for why we are saved. Only God is to be praised for this infinite, undeserving, gracious work called salvation. This is the first major proposition which Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 through 6 sets before us. But from praising God for every spiritual blessing He has blessed us with in Christ, Paul now moves forward to explain how all these spiritual blessings have become ours in Christ. From verses 4 through 6, we are shown when our salvation was appointed and why any sinner would be so appointed for salvation in Christ. And the first great reason is summed up in this way. God chose to save us. Look with me at verse 4. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. The opening words of this text, even as, come from the Greek word kathos, which is better translated by the term because. Because. This word, therefore, is connecting us with what Paul will reveal as the ultimate cause or explanation for why God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. So, we raise the question, what is the supreme reason? What is the ultimate cause for why God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ? What is the paramount reason given by God's Word for why anyone is saved? Ephesians 1.4 says it in the plainest terms. It is because He chose us. Why then am I a Christian? Why is it that I ever came to faith in Christ? Why is it that I see my sin as rebellion against God and make every effort to flee from it? Why is it that I want to gather with other Christians to worship God and exalt His name together. Why is it that my greatest treasure is to make much of God in Christ and long for others in the world to follow Christ as I am? Why is it that I have a hunger and thirst to know and obey the Word of God? Why have all these radical changes taken place in my life since I was not born with a single desire for any one of them? What is the ultimate reason for all these things? Ephesians 1 and verse 4 tells us, it is because God chose us for salvation. He chose to save us. Now to unpack what this divine choice means with greater clarity, I want us to consider four facts which surface right here from our text. First, it was a free and independent choice. It was a free and independent choice. The verb Paul employs, translated chose, comes from a Greek compound word which means to choose out of or to select. It therefore carries the idea of the choice of some and the rejection of others. 
In addition to this, the verb chose is used here in what is called the aorist middle indicative construction. This tells us that God chose us at one point in time, namely in the past, and by the usage of the middle voice, we see that this choice God made, He did both by Himself and for Himself. In other words, the grammatical construction of this verb chose is revealing to us that nothing influenced God's choice outside of Himself. His election of certain sinners to salvation, which is the great biblical doctrine Ephesians 1.4 is teaching us, was a free and independent choice. This means there was nothing in the sinner that moved God to make His choice. God did not look down the tunnel of time and see that Billy and Mary were going to one day accept Christ and on that basis God chose to save Billy and Mary. Well, I admit that is a very popular idea which many Christians have embraced to explain the doctrine of election. Yet, despite how many favor this concept, it is not what the Bible teaches. When we read in Ephesians 1.4 that God chose us, this declaration is saying that God's choosing us was a purely sovereign choice. It was free and independent of anything in the sinner influencing what God would do. This is what Romans chapter 9 verses 11 through 16 teaches about God's election. Listen to this amazing passage. Though they were not yet born, speaking of Jacob and Esau, and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of His call, she was told, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then, it depends. What is the word it the antecedent of? It is the antecedent of God's purpose of election in verse 11. So we can read it this way. So then... God's purpose of election depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Like Ephesians 1, 4, Romans 9, 11 through 16 is saying the same thing. God's choice of sinners for salvation is a sovereign choice uninfluenced by anything in the sinner. God shows the mercy and compassion of salvation on whomever He chooses. And this election is not unfair because it is not based on the foreseen merits or demerits of the sinner. This is an act of mercy which implies that no one deserves to be saved. Hence the common charge that such a choice by God is unfair is frankly an unwarranted and false accusation. It can't be unfair since the basis of God's choice has nothing to do with the worthiness of the sinner. No, God chose us to be saved and this choice He made for Himself and by Himself. It was free and independent. Secondly, it was a choice made in view of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Looking again at Ephesians 1 and verse 4. He chose us in Him. In Him. The phrase in Him is referring directly to Jesus Christ. And what we're being taught here is that God's electing us to salvation was a choice made completely in relation to Jesus Christ and what He would do in order to accomplish our salvation. Charles Hodge explained it this way in his commentary on Ephesians. He wrote, The purpose of election is very comprehensive. 
It is the purpose of God to bring His people to holiness, sonship, and eternal glory. He never intended to do this irrespective of Christ. On the contrary, it was His purpose, as revealed in Scripture, to bring His people to these exalted privileges through a Redeemer. It was in Christ, as their head and representative, they were chosen to holiness and eternal life, and therefore, in virtue of what He was to do in their behalf. But of course, brothers and sisters, what this truth of our election in Christ clearly says is that the election of God to save sinners does not save in and of itself. God chooses to save us, yes. However, it is in Jesus Christ and what He has achieved that actually guarantees the salvation of all God's elect. It is for this reason, therefore, that Jesus Himself spoke in terms of God the Father giving Him a people to save. Let me give you three examples from the Gospel of John. John chapter 6, verses 37 and 39, our Lord Jesus said, All the Father gives me will come to me. This is the will of the Father who sent me. That of all He has given me, I should lose nothing but should raise it up on the last day. In John chapter 10, verses 15, 27, and 29, our Lord Jesus again declares, I lay down my life for the sheep. And who are His sheep? He tells us, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. And finally, John chapter 17, verses 1 and 2. Our Lord Jesus, praying to the Father, petitioning the Father, He says, glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you as you have given Him authority over all flesh that He should give eternal life to as many as you have given Him. Now, what each of these passages are so plainly showing is that Jesus came into this world for the intended purpose of saving only those whom the Father gave Him to save. In other words, the design and purpose of Christ's redeeming work was to save only God's elect. So those whom the Father chose to save, He gave to His Son to enter this world and do what was necessary to fulfill their salvation. This truth is what we need to see and understand Behind these words in Ephesians 1.4, He chose us in Him. We were chosen in view of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Thirdly, it was a choice made from eternity. Looking again at verse 4, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. When did God choose to save us? Listen once more to these amazing words before the foundation of the world. Here in our text, we are given an actual glimpse into the eternal counsel of the eternal Godhead and what was being planned before the foundation of the world. Quoting again from Sinclair Ferguson, commenting on this revelation, he wrote, God's grace is so gracious that He had us in view before we ever came to faith, even before we were ever born, even before the world was created. Then, when only the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit existed, God lovingly predestined His people to be His. This is God's eternal election. Shedding more light on this timing of our election, Dr. Curtis Vaughn wrote, 
It was an eternal choice. It was made before any created thing came into being, indeed, before time began. The New Testament appears to emphasize this fact in order to bring out that God's choice is immutable. That nothing can happen in time or eternity to shake His determination to save His people. God's purposes cannot miscarry, nor can they be checkmated. But, in addition to these comments on the timing of our election, it must also be noted that when this choice was made by God, it rules out any possibility that we could have either earned or deserved to be chosen. In fact, it must be understood that God's eternal election presupposes the fall of the human race into sin. God has not chosen to save good people, but sinners. He elected us in view of our deserving His condemnation for our sins. Therefore, we had no say in the matter of who God would choose to redeem. Moreover, because His choice was before the foundation of the world, it has forever sealed the praise of our salvation as credited to God alone. Finally, it was a sanctifying choice. It was a sanctifying choice. The goal of God choosing to save us was so that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Now let me say this very simply. The goal of election is the full sanctification of all the elect. And according to Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30, this divine purpose of our election is fixed. It is determined, unchanging, and spoken in terms of it already taking place. Listen to what Romans 8, 28 through 30 says. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. So when we read here in Ephesians 1 and verse 4 that God chose us to be holy and blameless before Him, we must understand that because this is God's purpose for all His people, then it shall be fulfilled by His grace, bringing us to the finish line, as it were, of our sanctification. This, of course, does not exclude the fact that along our journey, we will fall. We will stumble, we will sin, and be ever called by God's Word to pursue the holiness which He has chosen us for. However, what we must be encouraged by is that in the mix of our many failings, God will complete the good work He has begun in us when He first brought us to Himself. All of this sums up the glorious truth of God's free, independent, sovereign, eternal election of His people, as it is so clearly put forth in Ephesians 1 and verse 4. This is the fountainhead of our salvation. This is the spring from which it all flows. But it does not end here. From God choosing to save us, we need to consider the next place of our study... God predestined us to adoption as sons. Let's now look at the first clause of Ephesians 1 and verse 5. In love He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. There are two great principal truths concerning our salvation which stand out from this verse. First, we were predestined. We were predestined. In love He predestined us. The word translated predestined comes from a Greek term which means to mark out with a boundary beforehand or to foreordain. 
Combined with what we saw in verse 4, those whom God chose to save had already been marked out for this choice. God had determined beforehand the eternal destination of His elect and marked out the time, the place, and the circumstances when this eternal plan would become their personal experience. Observing this fact, Charles Spurgeon once mused, I do not doubt that the Lord has settled concerning every one of His elect the exact time when they shall pass from death unto life the precise instrumentality by which they shall be converted, the exact word that shall strike with power on their mind, the period of conviction which they shall undergo, and the instant when they burst forth into the joyful liberty of a simple faith in Christ. It is all settled, all arranged and predetermined in the divine purpose. If the very hairs of our head are all numbered, much more the circumstances of the most important of all events which can occur to us. Secondly, notice we were adopted to sonship. Not only were we predestined, but we were adopted to sonship. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Now here we're faced with a truth regarding our salvation that is sadly missing as even a category for most Christians. Adoption in the context of our redemption centers on the position, the standing, the rank that we have in relationship to God as our Father. It is this truth which gives us the status and privilege of being children of God. Moreover, as J.I. Packer noted, the adopted status of believers means that in and through Christ, God loves them as He loves His only begotten Son and will share with them all the glory that is Christ's now. Based on this, Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 17, describes believers as legal heirs with Christ because of our adoption as sons. This means then that adoption is the bestowal of our relationship with God as His children. To understand this by a comparison, with regeneration, we are given the nature to become God's children. But with adoption, we are given the privileges that belong to membership in God's family. But keeping the truth of our adoption as sons within the context of Ephesians 1, 4 and 5, we see that this decision for such a relationship was made in eternity, before the foundation of the world, when God predestined us for this glorious purpose. We were marked out to be God's adopted children before anything was ever created. Furthermore, notice that this predestined adoption was through Jesus Christ. Only on account of what Christ would do to save God's elect could there even be an adoption as sons. Yet there's one final observation we need to see here in the first half of Ephesians 1.4. What moved God to mark us out to be His children through Christ? Was it just an arbitrary choosing? No. The Scripture tells us here, it was in love God predestined us for adoption as sons. God chose to set His love on us and mark us out to be His adopted children in spite of the fact that we did nothing to deserve that love but only condemnation for our sins. But in affirmation of such a staggering truth as this is, I can hear a question at this point being raised. Well, why then would God love me if I was not already lovable? Or, on the other end, why, in fact, would He even choose to save me and mark me out from eternity to be His child if all I deserved was condemnation for my sins? Why? Well, the answer to these questions leads us now to our final point of study from Ephesians 1, 3 through 6. And that point is spelled out in this way. God has chosen 
and predestined us for salvation because of His own good pleasure and for His own glorious praise. Look with me once more at verse 5 and then on to verse 6. According to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Why has God chosen to save us? Why has He predestined us to be His adopted sons on account of Christ? Ephesians 1, 5 and 6 answers these questions in two very profound ways. First, we were chosen, predestined, and adopted for the satisfaction of God's will. Here in verse 5 we read, according to the purpose of His will. This phrase is better translated, according to the good pleasure of His will. Paul uses the Greek word, eudakia, which can mean either good pleasure or satisfaction. The point of this statement is simply this. It pleased God and gave Him the greatest satisfaction to elect a countless number of fallen sinners, give them to His Son to redeem in His image, having marked them out beforehand to be His adopted children. It gave God satisfaction to do this. Secondly, we were chosen, predestined, and adopted to magnify the glory of God's grace. Looking at verse 6, to the praise of His glorious grace. For what purpose did God choose to save us? For what purpose did God give us to His Son to redeem? For what purpose did God predestine us to holiness and sonship? It was for the purpose of showing off, if you will, and putting on display the majestic splendor of God's sovereign grace. We were chosen, predestined, and adopted to the praise of God's glorious grace. To the praise of His glorious grace. Paul alludes to this fact again in Ephesians 2 and verse 7. So that in the coming ages, He might show, literally, to put on display, the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ. The statement is simply repeating in different language what Paul sets forth as the general motif in Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 as a whole. Everything God has done to save His people has been to the praise of His glorious grace. It is to magnify the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ. This is why God has chosen to save us. We are meant to be displayed as trophies of His sovereign grace. So then let me ask you, back to the leading question. Why are we saved? Why are we saved? Is it because of a decision we made? Is salvation determined and dependent on what we must do? Is God in heaven wringing His hands, as it were, with worry that someone somewhere might not accept what He has provided for sinners to be saved? Is that the portrait of salvation in Scripture? Or, at the end of the day, after all discussion and debate has been exhausted, is the semi-Pelagian and the Arminian correct in their understanding about salvation? Is the redemption of the sinner really determined ultimately by what the sinner will do? Really? Well, according to what we have seen from Ephesians 1, 3 through 6, the answer to all of these questions is an emphatic and resounding no. No, absolutely not. Based upon the clear, infallible, authoritative teaching of God's Word, the reason anyone is ever saved is because God, in His mercy, love, and grace, chose to save a people He had previously marked out from every nation of the sinful world 
giving them to His Son for the purpose of accomplishing their salvation because such a redemption gave God divine satisfaction and set forth forever a people who would magnify the glory of God's sovereign grace. This is why we are saved. This is our redemption appointed. In closing then, let me leave you with six different lessons which we should draw and take in from this study of Ephesians 1, 3 through 6. I will give no commentary to these lessons. I'll just state them as they are. Lesson number one. We can never under any circumstances nor for any reason take the credit for one shred of our salvation. Lesson number two. We should be deeply humbled by the truth of God's sovereign grace. Apart from this, none would be saved. Lesson three. We should be deeply grateful for the truth of God's sovereign grace. For what we deserve is hell, not heaven. Lesson four. We should be impassioned with a greater love for God in a heart that swells with the praise of His worship. And consider what He has done for us. He chose to save us in spite of our rebellion and rejection of Him. Lesson five. We should be emboldened with a greater love to spread the gospel to all nations, knowing that the salvation of all the elect is certain, and thus our labors in evangelism are sealed with the success of omnipotent grace. And finally, we should count it the greatest and most infinite privilege to have been chosen by God for the purpose of displaying His sovereign grace throughout all eternity. Beloved, may our hearts be full of thanksgiving to the Lord. And may we not let our hearts lose sight of this glory of His redeeming grace, nor become cold to this truth, nor dare to ever take it for granted. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we have heard, Lord, the proclamation of Your Word, we ask now the Holy Spirit to mercifully seal the truth of Your Holy Scriptures that have been preached in our hearing this day. Seal them to our hearts. Sanctify us by them. Conform us more and to the very image of your Son, Jesus Christ, because of what we have heard in this hour. For the sake of Christ and in his name we pray.